Well, you know, we've been, we've been looking at Jesus preaching from the sea, uh, this parables revealing the secrets of this kingdom that we've been speaking about. And last week, if you remember, we talked about the kingdom uh, both surviving but even thriving in opposition. That Jesus has come to reveal the kingdom and he has revealed that the kingdom is going to move through opposition. Well, well this week, a little interesting, he's still preaching from the sea, he's still in the boat preaching to the crowds, and he gives two parables. And these two parables we're going to look at together, they're not twins, but they're kind of like cousins. They say the same thing, but they're going to press the point in two different ways. He's going to reveal these secrets to us so that we can persevere in this life with joy. Now, the secret of the kingdom that he's going to reveal is simply this, that though the kingdom comes in an insignificant way, it will become irresistible in its power and in its ability to transform both God's world, but also God's people. So two things, this, this idea that something small, something kind of paltry, something even kind of weak, is going to become so large that it's going to transform the world and it's going to transform God's people in the world. So if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, we're just going to read 31 through 35, Matthew 13, 31 to 35. You're, you've been familiar, I'm sure, with these parables, but, but hopefully I might show them in a little different light. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man sowed, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Okay, so you see the two parables there. Now, um, the first parable is about the explosive growth from very insignificant starting point of the kingdom of God in the world. So you have this idea of the kingdom of God is like. Now, we have ideas about what the kingdom of God is like. We, we have an idea about what the kingdoms are like, right? We've seen them. We, we usually see them as geopolitical or geographical boundaries. You know, there's people, there's land, land there's boundaries, there's politics. We, we, when we think of kingdoms, we think of kings, we think of queens, we think of royalty. We think of kind of pomp and circumstance, pageantry, military parades. Well, that's what these people were thinking of, that when Jesus, when God was going to bring his kingdom, it would come in like manner. It would come with power. It would come with, with authority. It would even come with cataclysmic events. You know, the lightning, the thunder, the earth shaking. If God's going to set up his kingdom, this is going to be the way it comes. That's what they're expecting. And so it would have been revolutionary for them to hear Jesus say, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed. Jesus is trying to, as I will be today, trying to reorient your mind about the nature of this coming kingdom. He's trying to change it from the, from the intuitive kind of, well, yeah, if a kingdom comes, it's going to come with power. And he's going to say, no, it's like a mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds. 
Now, technically, it is not the smallest of all seeds. But the point of it is, it's, in, it's the smallest in a proverbial sense. In other words, it was known, proverb, that if you wanted to reference something small, you would use a mustard seed. Jesus even used it in Luke 17, where he spoke about that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea. So it was seen as very small. And what Jesus is showing us here is, no, the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, it's going to come in very, very weak and insignificant ways. Don't be, don't be deceived by that. But it's going to come in very weak ways. Now, we see it in the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, when you think about his humble birth in a stable or in a stall or in some, some area that wasn't even owned by them, or you think about his life, he's raised in a no-name town. His parents were really no-namers as well. He lived the bulk of his life in obscurity. I mean, think about it. 33, the bulk of his life, he wasn't a known quantity at all. When he did gather leaders with him, they were untrained, they were untested, they were unreliable. They departed on the, on the moment that he needed them most. They were gone. At the end of this king's life, what kind of end did he have? It was a lousy ending. I mean, he's hanging on a tree. Reputation of a criminal. He's being condemned to death. I mean, what a great start to a kingdom. I mean, it's a colossal failure. It's like getting on a sinking ship. I mean, would you get on a sinking ship? That's why, nobody, that's why everybody was ambivalent to him or even antagonistic to him. What kind of kingdom are you leading here? Jesus says, don't be deceived. It's going to start out that way. It's not going to end up that way. And that's the point. That's the flip side of this thing that so many people miss. That it's going to be explosive in its growth. It's going to be expansive in the way it goes. And that's why he says, when a man took it and sowed it in the field, though it's the smallest of seed, it will grow to be the largest of the plants in the garden. It will be a tree. So if you take a mustard seed, the size of it would be like a, a, a pinhead. If you took a pencil and just put it on a piece of paper, that's the size of a mustard seed. And that thing, will, when planted, will grow eventually till about 12 feet tall with branches providing shade. It's going to be, it's going to be a big big tree in the garden. That is the garden, not with other shrubs and bushes. That, that word indicates um, kind of vegetables and, and, um, and herbs. So it's going to tower over everything. In other words, the kingdom that Christ plants that starts insignificant is going to be colossal in size, but not just in size, also in diversity. Notice how all the birds come and nest in its branches. What is he referring to there? Well, if you were looking at Ezekiel, or if you look in Isaiah, if you were looking at Daniel, <clears throat> the tree is often a metaphor of a kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 4, in fact, you have a tree with branches, and he's referencing Babylon. And Babylon was such an expansive kingdom, it had so many nations under it. What Jesus is doing is he's taking a known quantity, saying, my kingdom is going to be great, it's going to be colossal, and all the nations are going to come under the shade of this tree. All the nations are going to come and worship. Jesus is saying, as my kingdom is so huge, it goes well beyond Israel, and all the nations are going to flock and worship Christ as the king. That's what Jesus is promising us. Disciples should have known that. Throughout Isaiah, it speaks about the kingdom being well beyond the borders of Israel. They should have known it. They should have known it from chapter 2 in Matthew. If you remember... Who was the first that came to Jesus to nest in his tree? But the Magi, Gentiles from the east, they come. They're the first ones. Why? Because they're a foretaste of what was going to happen and what is going to happen. 
So Jesus is giving us a picture here that the mustard seed is going to be planted and it's going to grow. And we know this, of course, in Revelation chapter 5, kind of a snapshot of the end. He says, this is the scene of all the saints, and here's Jesus, and they sing this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus has made this promise to his disciples, and we see it true today. The kingdom has grown. I mean, we should know of all people. Shame on us. I mean, we have the unique position to see. For example, let me give you an example of China. Okay, so China in the mid-20th century, Mao Zedong, the leader, kind of the bringing together of China, said there will be no Christianity here. That was his official announcement. Now, within about 70 years, church historians say that there has never been the explosive growth of Christianity ever recorded as it has in China. We don't even know how many there are. Some estimates are 100 million Christians. Massive growth. This seed planted is beginning to take root and grow. South America... Africa. Now, we in this country are shifting and moving away in terms of our belief, moving to a really, there's a new uh, category of people called the nons. They're non-religion. They don't have a religion. They may be spiritual, but they don't have a religion per se. So our country may be moving this way, but please don't think for a minute that the promise that Christ made is not coming true. It's exploding that this kingdom is big, not just in size, but also in ethnicity. Okay, well, this is good. I think you'd agree with me. This is very good news. I mean, when you think about the nature of missions for the church, how do we look at this today? How do we leave here thinking about this text? Well, A, missions are a very worthy endeavor, as God promises that it's going to be productive. I mean, think about it for a minute. We are joining with. So when you think of the seed and you think of where we are now, there's a continuity there. We are part of God's story. As his kingdom is growing and expanding, we're part of the story. We're in it. We're in the tree. We're part of that growth. There's a great excitement for us to engage in missions. There's a great excitement to be drawn into this plan that we know the end of the story. Now listen, we don't need to fear militant Islam. We don't need to fear the cultural wars. We don't need to fear the antagonism. Listen, we just studied that last week. Jesus says, it's in that soil that I'm going to bring. That's the irony of God. That's the glory of God, that he brings light out of darkness. That's what he does. That's his power, and we see that in the cross. He takes this apparent defeat, and what's he do? Boom, he brings victory out of it. So we don't want to fear those things. We have the promises of God. I think about in Philippians, he said, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. He says, In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Or in Revelation 11, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. That's what we have as believers. You know you're a believer when you begin to think, yes, 
Yes, the kingdom is coming in power. So we have a confidence. You know, when you think about missions, it isn't the most practical thing, really. It's not the most financially practical, for sure. You send people overseas, you send them for years over there, you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in missions. They're there three, four, five years. Maybe a convert, maybe two. There's not a lot of return. You really begin to wonder, gee, I wouldn't make my personal investments this way. But the kingdom of God is different. Why? It starts out insignificant, and then it begins to grow. One, two, come. They don't come by the dozens, usually. Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma, seven years he labored faithfully, not one convert, until the seventh year. William Carey, you've heard of that name, missionary in India, labored, how many years? Seven years. How many converts? One. I mean, that's not a lot. But then you look beyond, and you see this explosive growth. So we want to remember, it's kind of like the way they built cathedrals back in the Middle Ages. When they would build a cathedral, the men building the foundation wouldn't know the men building the roof. It took three generations to build these cathedrals back then. But it was one project, and it was going and it was going to be completed. So we want to think longer term, longer strategy. It begins insignificantly, but then it grows powerfully. I remember reading the story about Ruth Bell Graham. So Billy Graham's wife, her father was a medical missionary in China. And with that mission post, there was an itinerant evangelist there. And he would go out and preach out in the countryside. He was not well received. They'd throw dead cats at him. That's what they do in China. So if you were there, just remember that. They'd throw dead cats at him. No kidding. They'd throw it because it, as a sign of disrespect and, and as a sign of, of hatred. And uh, he, I think, was there for close to 20 years, maybe saw two, three dozen converts. That's all. She went back a number of years later, I don't know how many years, maybe it was 25 years on the anniversary celebrating the work that her father had done. And uh, they had seen churches planted there of over 200,000 people. He never saw it. It was insignificant, but it didn't stay that way. That's the nature of the kingdom. It begins insignificant. Now that's not just for the missions of the church, but also the ministry of the church. You know, I, I think many times... We fail to understand the counterintuitiveness of God. And when we look at churches or we look at ministries, we think bigger is better, or we think more sophisticated is more effective. We look at some ministries or some churches, and they're hip, they're strong, they're growing fast, they've got it all working. That's the place where God's moving. And they grow. But remember, all growth is not necessarily good growth. It may be. I'm not saying big is bad either. I'm simply saying God doesn't look at growth the way we look at growth. Let me give you an example. Willow Creek was a church. Many of you have heard that name. It was Church Planet in 1975. It was kind of on the vanguard of church growth. What they did was they were going around and saying what people didn't like about churches, and then they were going to build a church model that would serve the people that got tired of the traditional church. I don't know anything. I assume their motivation was great. I, I have no doubt about that. But, but the reality of it is they tried to change this church model. They're thinking, well, if we just change the form, then the non-Christian is going to come in and we're going to be able to reach them. We're going to have good music. We're going to have videos. We're going to do all this sort of stuff. And they were very successful, by the way. I mean, these churches grew very fast. 
and they were very popular. So when I began into ministry, it was a rage. They'd have these satellite conferences, you know, where you'd go to these big buildings, and they'd be beamed in there, and you'd be, here. here's how to do church. They had church growth experts that millions of dollars were spent, plans were made, and the whole thing. And, and it really grew in popularity. But it was about five years ago when he wrote a, he, um, Bill Hybels, the leader of Willow Creek, uh, published an article about saying we failed. It, it, I really respect the man for doing it. Here's what he said. He said, some of the stuff that we have put millions of dollars into thinking, it would really help our people grow and develop spiritually. He goes, when the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people. He says, we made a mistake. What we should have done when people cross the line of faith and become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they need to become, take responsibility to feed on the word. We should have gotten people, taught people, how to read their Bible, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively. They didn't do that. And so they found at the end of all those years that the church was not discipled. So, so let's not just be so simple or one-dimensional to think that big or sophistication. It doesn't mean that that's bad. And it also doesn't mean small's great. Small can be can be disastrous. We just don't want to look at things, you know, on a performance model. And, and, and how it applies to us in ministry is many of you are laboring in obscurity. I mean, you're working with people and you don't see a ton of fruit. You're, you're, you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and they reject you and you wonder, gee, was that really effective? Perhaps you're trying to teach the Bible to someone. You know, the classic example would be among the, among the children. You know, you're trying to teach them. Are they getting it? Are they not getting it? They seem to be like coloring more than they like the Bible. You may say the same thing among the adults. Maybe you should try coloring. I don't know. But the reality of it is that we often look at our ministries, we feel insignificant, and we feel that the result is very, very poor. And what I'm saying is, I think this is an encouragement to us. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, brothers, sisters, he says, uh, be, immo- be steadfast, be immovable. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your work of the Lord is not in vain. It, th- there is something inherent in this seed to a tree analogy that he's saying, though your ministries may seem insignificant, though the efforts you do may seem to not return the results that you would expect, do not deny the fact that God may be doing a great work in and through the event. So I get a call from Carol once after she had shared the gospel with somebody, and she was very upset because she said, marbles just came out of my mouth. That's all that came out. I, I don't know what I said. It was a disaster. I couldn't form sentences and just was feeling terrible about how she had presented the gospel. And so we talked about it, worked through it and everything like that. Well, later on, uh, the person came to faith in Christ and upon later reflection of the conversation, the woman was very helped by it. We tend to think that, that we're just not doing it right. And, and I want you to know that God takes our insignificant, our poultry, our weak offerings. It's like the two loaves and, and some fish. And God takes it and he does a work. And he does this so that we know it's his grace and it's not our eloquence. So it's to fight that tendency to think because I'm not eloquent and sophisticated and all this sort of thing, I'm not somehow effective in God's kingdom. Fight that. Because this parable is saying, I'm going to build my kingdom in a very counterintuitive way. And for the non-Christian here, I would think this 
This applies to you as well. I want to caution you. I'm thankful that you're here. I am very thankful. But I don't want you to be deceived that because Christianity can often look so goofy and insignificant and actually ineffective doesn't mean that God's not doing a work. I would say to you that God has designed it this way, that God has chosen to use the foolish and the ignorant to display his glory. And he does this to shut out the proud and to draw in the humble. I mean, that's the whole nature of the cross. The apparent defeat of the cross has brought forth life. But the cross, to everybody's one-dimensional view, is a failure. But God does it intentionally to humble the proud. This is the whole gospel is a stumbling block. Why is the gospel a stumbling block? Because if you're really smart, if God's really giving you a high IQ, and you listen to the gospel, and you take your intelligence to bear on the gospel, it's going to seem foolish to you. Okay, so you want me to believe a guy from heaven came down, become like me, even though he had everything going for him, he came like me, and then he died for my sins, he rose from the dead, and he went back up there, I haven't seen him yet, you want me to believe in him? It's like, well... There's a couple things you're missing there, but yeah, basically you got the, the gist of the story. And the intelligent person walks away. That's goofy. I can't buy that. That's like Martians. And then the moralist or the religious person is going to hear the story of Jesus, and, and you go through the cross and all that he did to pay for our sins. And, and what do you say? Well, I know I'm bad, but I'm gracious. I don't need that kind of sacrifice. I mean, I'm not that bad. I, I'm really not. I mean, I do these things, and I don't do these things, and And so the moralist is confounded by the gospel because he just can't see that he really needs something so dramatic to be brought to a holy God. And and so for the non-Christian here, of course it's a stumbling block. But that's God's design. Why? It it just goes the other way. It's just one of those paradoxes. We read in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Consider your calling, brothers. He's talking to the church here. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that's why, who entered the kingdom first? It was the prostitutes and the tax collectors and those that knew they needed help. The humble, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. So it's the broken. So for the non-Christian here, the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you to humble yourself to God. Humble yourself and embrace Christ by faith. That's the first thing we see in this parable of the seed. Now, let's, this is kind of the, ex, the external and the explosive growth of the kingdom. But now Jesus shifts to another parable that I think that is drilling down deeper in us. He's saying the kingdom of God is not just going to explode on the world scene, But the kingdom of God is going to explode on your soul. He's going to take over your life. Look in 33 with me. He says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, just right off the bat, a lot of people think leaven, often in scripture, references something negative, something darkening, something related to sin. And it often does do that, but not in every single case. And in this context, I would say it doesn't work that way, only because the kingdom of heaven is being related to leaven. So what's the story here? The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Well, think about it just for a minute. Let's go back to baking 
101. So you take the flour, the water, you mix the dough, and yeast has to be put into it, and the yeast ferments, it rises, right? And the bread rises, and then you bake it. Okay, so what leaven is, is leaven is a piece of dough that has already been fermented. So you take the dough, you put the yeast in it, and then it begins to rise, and then you take a piece out for the next batch of new dough that you're going to bake with. And so the leaven is really fermented, or let's just say yeasted dough. And so the parable is typical in any home at this time. The woman would take it and stick it into the, into the flour, and then mix it up, and then it would have its work until the full lump is leavened. So what Jesus is applying this, I think, is to us. And, and this yeast, of course, being the gospel, is hidden. In other words, the leaven works in a way that oftentimes you don't even understand. You don't even see it. It's the way the gospel works in us. Oftentimes, you don't see it. But, but what I want you to see in this parable is that the yeast or the leaven had to come from outside and put into the dough. In other words, dough doesn't leaven itself. There has to be an outside agent put into the dough for the leavening effect to be. And I think what Jesus is saying is when the gospel comes into the, to the person, when the person repents and believes and the gospel takes root in the soul, it works like leaven. So it begins to leaven the life towards God's reign. So it's God's kingdom in there. So the person's life begins to take upon it becomes to take this image of more and more of God's kingdom. All the areas of life, the way I handle my finances, the way I handle my marriage, the way I handle my, my job, the way I handle my parenting, those things begin to look more and more like God's kingdom is setting up shop as that leaven begins to expand. I think that's what he's saying here. A little bit of leaven, leaven the whole dough. And it doesn't stop with just a little bit of transformation. Jesus is promising us that the Christian will be fully leavened. All the way. And I want you to recognize something, that these three measures of flour, it's about 40 to 50 pounds of flour. It could feed over 100 people, but just a little bit of yeast, showing us the power of the gospel to change. That that, 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 that leaven will ultimately work its way through. This is great hope for the Christian. So when you, let me just speak to the Christian for a minute. When you look at this, there, there are some truths that you need to grasp to understand this Christian life. Number one, that the growth in Christianity is a a gradual growth. It's a slow growth. You don't often see it. It's often unnoticeable and unobservable. Oftentimes, you know how leaven works? You don't just sit there and watch it just go up like a balloon. It takes time. It takes hours. Well, Well, this takes a life for Christ to be formed within us. Saints aren't made in a day. I, I think too many of us, again, in, a, in an intuitive way, and in an instantaneous way, we think, well, once I become a Christian, then my life's going to change. And, and the struggle with, that I have with sin is going to be eliminated. My, my false thinking and my errant ways and the habits that I've established over all these years of living in darkness, they're just going to be changed to be removed. And I think it really leads a lot of us to frustration. Those of you, you have those besetting sins you can't seem to turn away from lust. You can't seem to turn away from anger. You can't seem, and you get discouraged. And, and much of our discouragement comes from the fact of why isn't it changing? Why isn't it happening now? Why didn't it happen last week? I've been a Christian for 10 years. I'm still struggling in these areas. Well, the reality of this, thankfully, for this parable, 
that it takes time. That, that the Christian will still struggle with sin in this life. But over time, you begin to notice maybe you don't take a second glance. Maybe you deal with your anger in the right way one time. Maybe you do identify sin in your life more quickly. Maybe you do begin to confess sin a little faster. It, as one author said, I loved it, he says, quietly our lusts will be crucified. It's quiet. It, it's kind of subtle. It isn't immediate. This is really an important truth to gain, to save us from this this despair over a false view of sanctification. I met a um, a pastor from Raleigh that I hadn't seen in probably 12 or 13 years the other day, and he asked me, what do you love best, and what do you struggle with most in the ministry? And... uh, I said, I I think in some respects it's the same thing. What I love most is being with the people over the years and just constantly hitting them with the word, teaching them, loving them, so that their souls will be transformed. The thing I struggle with is why it sometimes just takes so slow. It's so long. And, And then I was just immediately convicted of the text I was preaching on. That's the nature of it. It's the slow outworking of God's grace in our life. So for the Christian here, it is gradual. It's slow. And not just for yourselves, but I would also apply this to how we look at other people in here. Because, you know, you look at other people and you think, I'm so tired of that guy's anger. I'm so tired of that guy's behavior. Maybe our spouse. And we're so tired of their behaviors. And we think, why hasn't he changed? Why hasn't he gotten better? It should be different in his life by now. And we get resentful and we get angry and we get bitter. And we forget that the same change that we're struggling with, they are as well. And I was reminded of when Paul wrote to, uh, wrote to the Thessalonian church, towards the end of his letter in the fifth chapter, he says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. There, there is a lot of wisdom and a lot of grace that we could be giving. I don't want to tolerate sin for a minute. Please help understand that. I'm not saying let's tolerate sin, but I'm saying let's understand the way God deals with the process of sanctification in our life. A lot lot more grace, I think, could be given to one another. But the change is just not gradual that we see with 11. The change is difficult. I mean, if you picture a woman kneading bread, it isn't a a soft kind of putting oil on your husband's back. It, it, It isn't this kind of nice you know, kind of soft. No, you put the yeast in, you press it down, you roll it around, you, you move it around. I mean, the, if I was the dough, I would think that would be a fairly uncomfortable experience. Well, <laughs> sanctification, sanctification is an uncomfortable experience. It's difficult to change. Folks, you've made friends with a lot of your sins. And, and, and our habits and our, our posture in life is often fixed. And then God begins to do a work, and it's hard. It's difficult to let go of those things. It, it, it's, I mean, we, we, love the, we love the immediate change. The drug addict stands up, I've been delivered, and he has been, and we praise God for that. But God works the majority of the time in the ordinary. And the ordinary is it's difficult, and it's a challenge. In fact, it's really a word to us as a church, because sanctification in the Scriptures is never seen individually individualistically. It's always corporate. All those one another's that we're called to 
to do. That we're called to engage one another and encourage one another. And this is where the rub comes. Because when we engage one another, oftentimes we get upset with each other. Who are you to weigh into my life? Who are you to tell me what you're thinking? And we don't like that at all. I don't like that, frankly. And someone says, or Carol says to me, yeah, i got to talk about something. I'll grab the chair. I mean, I brace myself so I don't react the way that I'm feeling, which is I don't like to be told that. But I do know that the scriptures are clear that we as a church need to be moving towards each other because it's hard to change. And God has set change within the context. That's why the church is often called the incubator. We're just baking in here. God is fitting us for heaven right now. And, and so invite people into your life without the pushback, without the, the criticism. of Maybe they don't do it super well. Perhaps they come stumbling in with some suggestions for you or they have some concerns for you. Perhaps they do it incorrectly, but please don't diminish and deny them the responsibility to do that. That's how change comes. That's part of the leavening process. What I'm thankful for is that change will come and the whole lump is thoroughly um, leavened. If you're a Christian, would you rejoice with me that God has promised to do this? That he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, Paul told the church of Philippi. Or in Ephesians, when he said that he chose you before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless. That's your destiny. You will be leavened. You will be changed. That's the destiny. Even if it comes at the day of Christ, you will be leavened. When you see him, you'll be like him. That's the assurance the Christian has. Folks, that is something to rejoice. For those of us that get discouraged over sometimes the two steps forward, three back, I'm very thankful for this. He has promised to fully leaven us, to fully change us. Those of you right now that are struggling and you think, I'll never get rid of this sin. Brother, sister, you will. One day, you will. It's going to be leavened. Now, for the, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, you're thinking about the faith, this is the Christian model of change. Now, if you're in the world, if you're not part of the Christian faith, then how does change come to you? I mean, I've, I've only met a few people that were bold enough to say, I don't need to change. I got it all down. So I've only met a few of them, and uh, I disagreed with them, by the way. Uh, but, but very few people say they don't need to So how do you change? There's two ways that, that, that people outside of the Christian faith try to change. One is to dig down deep inside. Hey, we've got the resources. you just got to tap down into that power. Well, I think we've, we've drunk deeply on the superhero thing because... I don't believe, and I haven't seen any evidence, people can self-reform an area or two, but rarely does it last, and rarely does it, it go broader than an area or two. Other people think that change will come through a new relationship, or uh, a new job, or a new administration. And, and those don't really bring change, even if they say they bring change. They may bring change, it may be worse, but, but they don't bring change. Governments cannot save. Uh, marriages, people that get married a second time are more likely to become divorced than those who are married the first time. Uh, so, so change doesn't come through outside influences of the world. The Christian faith teaches that change will only come as something outside of us comes inside, and that's the gospel that the gospel has a regenerating power. Let me explain it. 
for both the Christian and the non-Christian here. The fact that Jesus Christ came and lived among us, died for our sins, was accepted by God, was drawn to heaven, God has sent his spirit down now to fill and change his people. So the Christian understands that the spirit of God to the person who has repented of sin, believed upon Jesus Christ, they've been filled with the spirit, and now the spirit begins that work of change. This is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if you remember in John chapter 3, he was a priest. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a religious man. He was probably morally better than the vast majority of us. And Jesus said to him, for you to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again, to be born again. That you have to be born of water and the spirit. The spirit gets in us and begins to change. That's how the Christian changes. And I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to consider these things. If you have questions, come forward later and ask. But notice what he does here. So in the first parable, he says the kingdom's going to grow boldly and wildly, externally. It's also going to grow within the hearts of the Christian. The kingdom of God will grow. And then he shifts in 34 and 35, and he says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Now look in 35, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Why does Matthew seem to just step and do this parenthesis, right? We're going through all these parables, and then he just stops to the side and he says, hey, this is why Jesus is doing all these things. It's kind of like an editorial comment if you were there. And I think he's really doing it for two reasons. This is a quote from Psalm 78, by the way. And he's simply saying this, that Jesus spoke in parables to confirm his identity. He's the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. God would send one who would speak these hidden things to people. And so he's holding Jesus up to the people and saying, he is the Messiah. He's the one you're to follow. But the second reason is to show his authority, that he's expressing things that were hidden. They weren't known by people. Jesus had to explain this idea of the kingdom's not going to come with pomp and power, but it's going to become insignificant, but become great and mighty. So I think Matthew's just simply saying this. At the end of the day, this kingdom of God is growing. It's going to grow externally. It's going to grow internally. But it's going to grow because of Christ. Do you have ears to hear what Christ says? He's kind of calling our attention back to the reality that Christ is the person we have to deal with. He's the one that we follow by faith, or he's the one that we decide we're not going to follow by faith. So, so let's just take a minute now and pray. And uh, we're going to pray silently again. We're going to do this for a season of time. Uh, what, I, what I want you to do is think about that. The nature of the growing kingdom. Have you, have you failed to understand the power of the kingdom? Have you succumbed to fear? Have you succumbed to a sense of despair? Perhaps repent of that. Ask God for grace to understand the power of the kingdom. And also internally, have you seen the change take place within you through the Spirit? Have you begun to see God's grace manifesting itself more and more as sin is pushed out and as you're being leavened. And if you haven't, this is a time to repent. It's a time to ask God, God, fill me with your spirit that I might be different. And it's a time to deal with Christ. He is the one who's come to bring a kingdom and power, authority and glory. Will you follow him? Do you want to follow him? Ask for the desires if you don't have it. Ask for forgiveness. So let's take a minute in silence and then... Um, Keith is going to close us in prayer.